What is up, everyone? Ryan Ray here inside the war room alongside, if you're watching, a pink stroller from my daughter. Okay, let's get into today's episode. I have Patricia Farah on, who is a historian of science at the University of Cambridge. She has a litany of books, and I say litany. Let me, <laughs> let me go through the books that she's published, Science of 4,000-Year History. She's got books on Newton, uh, on Darwin, um, and a handful of other topics. I will link to her Amazon Associates page in the show notes, so be sure to check out her books. Okay, before we get into the show, let's talk about Ryan Recommends. And so I've got the five wide newsletter I talk about quite often. Um, I've read, listened to, read uh, 12 books this month. And so the book that I'm going to recommend, I think now, probably haven't so far, is The War Below by James Scott. Um, if you haven't read that, you like submarines, World War II history, The War Below by James Scott is fantastic. Go check it out. Now, sponsor. Our sponsor is Novo. I use them for online banking, and you should too. If you're a small business owner or a solopreneur and you're looking to bank online and you don't want to go to the bank, you don't want to do all that pesky stuff, Novo is the place for you. I will leave a link to them in the show notes below. Really appreciate them sponsoring the podcast. Now, back to our guest, Patricia Farah. Okay, as I said, she is a historian of science. Got a litany of books out about scientists and the history of science. Fantastic conversation. Really enjoyed talking with her um, and going through what has gone on in science over these past you know couple thousand years. Hope you enjoy it. If you do, drop a five-star review, or if you're watching on YouTube, how about a thumbs up? Patricia, it is wonderful to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, and I'm very glad to be here chatting with you this afternoon. Okay, so you you have, I was looking at your Amazon author's page earlier, um, a litany of books on scientists and science and history, uh, and kind of co-mingling all those topics, um, which is kind of a unique approach, it seems, that you're, from your vantage point of how you're covering these topics. What got you focused on this type of um, history? Uh, I absolutely love writing, and I've always been involved in education. And I sort of, I, f I feel, I feel, I've always felt a desire to communicate to a more general public, not just to write narrow academic texts. I was privileged enough to have a very fine education. And I think in a sense, people in my position have got a responsibility to share the results of their discoveries with people more widely. And I was lucky in the sense that I didn't have an academic job that demanded that I produce so many uh, academic papers every single year. So although I have written academic papers, I prefer writing these more popular books and reaching a wider public. It's, it's much more difficult to write a general book than to write an academic book, but I, I really enjoy the challenge. Yeah, I was looking for um, have an academic book on... Um, Hong Kong and China around here somewhere. I was trying to find it, but I was going to point that out that actually it's a, it's okay. So it's, it's really weird, right? The academic books, at least for someone like myself, they're a little harder to read, but, but the irony is, is that communicating to the general popular population is actually harder to write, right? That is, it's, it's really weird. Well, it, it is, but it's sort of a bit like when I read a student's essay. I, I, tell, I tell the students, look, I have to read your essay because I'm either the examiner or I'm your, or your teacher. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't make 
your essay interesting to read. And okay. if you're writing a popular book, the person always has the option of putting it down or not buying it in, in the bookshop. So you've got to write in a way that's going to immediately attract their attention. So you have to think of devices to get into your subject with, without sort of starting at the very beginning but so, or without having too many dates and facts that clog up the narrative. So, okay, so the, then the follow-up that seems to be is, how do you know what the general populace wants to read about? Um, well, in a sense, I think I have to tell them what they want to read about. Um, I I write about what interests me, and I sort of talk to friends and sort of find out what interests them. And I don't think you can write a popular book unless you're really impassioned about your subject. You you really have to be engaged in it. So I've I've sort of developed subjects that I'm I really want to write about, and I want to really persuade other people that they're important. If it was something that I wasn't particularly interested, I know, like the tax system in 17th century England, I couldn't possibly write a book about that. Other people can, but not me. Okay, and so you you tackle these subjects like um, you have a book I believe from 2010, um, science a four thousand year history, and and like I like okay I like history, I'm fascinated by it. I would get nervous just thinking about tackling such a broad subject because what do you keep in? What do you take out? What do you focus on? And when you when you when you think about history. Um, I was reading a book on John um, John Adams' uh, biography. It's a it's a big long one. I was listening to it, but it's a big long one. It's like thirty hours listening or whatever. And there's certain things um, that the biographer focuses on, and I, and then sometimes he kind of skim over, like, whoa, whoa, hold on, I want to know more about I want to know more about this. And so I'm always curious how you go through making determinations of what's important and what's not important because that's not as simple as um, I think most people think it is. Um, you're absolutely right. And in a sense, that, that book was a contribution to a much larger uh, de academic debate. About 20 years earlier, I was still a student and I'd been in a conference and the conference of the, the subject of the conference was how do you write a big history? <laughs> and do you write sort of the old fashioned ones are celebrating the rise of science? They go from Plato to NATO. And then there's newer histories that place more emphasis on instruments. And there's other ones that concentrate on the role of genius. So I, I decided then about 20 years earlier that I was going to write my own version of history. It's by far the most successful book that I've written in terms of sales and translations into other languages. But it also, as well as including various facts, it also included my beliefs about how you should tell history. So I tried to make it very international, not just uh, dead white men who live in Europe. Um, I tried to have women. I tried to I tried to write about the whole range of social classes, not just the big names like Isaac Newton or um, Charles Darwin, but all the other people. They're called invisible assistants. All the all the countless countless other people that are involved in the whole scientific enterprise and uh, contri contribute to new results happening. So I didn't very much did not want to write about the inevitable rise of science because that's not what I believe in. And it's the same. Uh, with this most recent book I've written about Isaac Newton's career in London after he um, had written his book about gravity and he was running London's Royal Mint. Um, a friend of mine commented in great surprise, Patricia, you've written a very anti-capitalist book. 
And it's right, it was a book that had a political message as well as a historical one. So I always put something of myself, my own beliefs in my book. Every historian does, because you have to choose which facts you're going to tell and which angle you're going to tell them from. And that reflects what sort of person you are and what your own personal beliefs are in how society should run and be changed. I think it's a fascinating point, because if you think about um, the history that will be told about Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or whatever, you could very much narrow it in on those big names, Elon Musk, or you could pull back out and they had to have a lot of help, right? They just didn't do it in a vacuum. And so when you go back into history, you think about the, the Reformation, you know, you could talk about Calvin or Luther or someone, but there's a lot more people involved. And the same thing with true these scientists is that there's a lot more people involved and it, it is hard to think in those terms because if you're not an expert on the material, it's much easier to think about, you know, Newton or, um, you know, someone else and, and not think about all the little moving parts involved. So wanting to capture that is a, is a well-needed reminder for most of us who are, who are thinking about just the names through history. Yeah, I think if um, there weren't even any scientific laboratories, any sort of large public laboratories like there are now before the 19th century. So people who are doing scientific research were doing it at home. And that meant that their wives and their daughters um, were, were helping them. Obviously, the wives and the daughters never got any credit in the books that were published, but right. they were all doing the drawings and uh, doing the translations and editing and keeping snail collections. They were doing all sorts of things, uh, but it was the men who just got all the credit. And of course, it was more difficult because until the 19th century, women couldn't go to university. So unless they were very rich and could afford a private tutor, they generally didn't have a very good education, but they certainly knew a lot of practical science and were absolutely crucial for what their husbands and fathers were doing. So how do the men of those times that are using or partnering with, or however you want to phrase it, their wives and their daughters, how do they view their role in it? So there's one thing, if I'm hearing you correctly, the history has been kind of told that the men were the ones, you know, because they were going into the office, but did the husbands appreciate the roles of their wives and their daughters helping them in the process? I think that depended very much on the husbands. I think some husbands were much more appreciative than, than others. I mean, quite quite a few of them just regarded it as completely natural that mm -hmm. the wives should be their assistants. And um, I, I think one of the things which is really quite sobering is when you go back into the past and you read what women have written, you discover that women also felt that they were inferior and subordinate to men and that their role in life was was to assist and to help rather than to take a leading role. So I think it's too easy just to blame the men for suppressing the women. The, the women and the men collectively believed in dif differences between the genders in a way that I hope that we no longer do. And, and so would you say that that primarily changed around the Enlightenment in the West at least? Uh, no, because I think one of the biggest influences in certainly in the Anglophone world during the 19th and 20th centuries was Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin made scientific the common prejudice that women are inferior to men. He basically said that over the millions and millions of years of evolution, um, men have uh, men and male animals and men have been selectively 
chosen to do all the things like hunting and uh, def defending the property, whereas the women have been adapted to uh, to stay at home and look after the children, do all the cooking. So what Charles Darwin did was validate scientifically what every what everybody's ordinary prejudices were, and I think it took a long while during the 20th century to overturn that belief. So. That raises an interesting question, which is what can science actually speak to, right? So what what range, you know, how far does science go on, on issues that it can actually speak to? So some of what you're saying is Darwin took this scientific approach, but also you might view that as a, uh, it could be a philosophical approach to how he viewed these issues. And so um, does science, at least um, historically and in modern times, speak beyond its scope of what it can actually address? Well, science is a th isn't a thing. Science doesn't have boundaries drawn around it. You, it's actually very difficult to define science. Science. The best definition is is the one: science is what scientists do. And I don't think there's any sense in which science is independent of political and commercial and military and imperial interests. Uh, they're they're all bound together and there's there's nothing particularly pure about scientific research and, and there's there's no sense in my opinion there's no sense in which scientists are on the moral high ground or even the intellectual high ground compared with other people so I, I don't think there is any sense in which science is right or wrong or should or shouldn't do that do this or do that um scientists do what they want to do for their own personal interests and sometimes it's just they just want to pursue research sometimes it's because they want to make a lot of money or that's why we've got nuclear bombs and that's why we've got global warming and all the rest of it because science is not independent from a society and from political pressures it's sort of part of the capitalist regime that much of the world lives under okay so it's, it's interesting to hear you say that i was in a conference in zambia uh, a few years ago, uh, five, five, six years ago now, anyways, and they were talking about battery technology for solar power um, and how they were going to revolutionize Zambia. And I'm not a battery expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I knew enough to know that what they were saying was just, by and large, pipe dreams. Like, there was no way that what they were wanting to do was going to happen. It was the, the technology just wasn't there. Um, and there was a, there was a professor um, from a university, I, I won't say which one, um, and I was asking him a, you know, about some of the presentations that were being made. And he kind of went through this long, this long talk about how he's frustrated that more scientists don't reveal where their funding comes from and how that influences their results. It doesn't mean the results are wrong, but his, his point was that all scientific research, I think is something like this, should be, you should make very clear who, who funded it because that interprets the potential for biases. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. And it's very relevant at the moment. I mean, a lot of people want to uh, disinvest from various companies like I know, the big petroleum companies, for example, and then they turn around and say, well, they're funding a lot of the research that's trying to slow down global warming. So you're left not knowing really where you should invest and what's worthwhile. I think it's incredibly complicated. And certainly science and politics and the rest of society, they're completely interwoven. You can't separate science out as the pure pursuit of knowledge. It's, right. it's a social activity like any other. And, and would you say, historically speaking, um, it has always kind of had... Um, so obviously on some level this has always been true. Um, is it more 
heightened right now or back you know 2000 years ago or a thousand years ago or 600 years ago was the problem worse where it was harder to tell um is there any read on that from a historical perspective oh, I, I say i think uh, when you go back so for example in the 17th century when newton was rising to fame science was incredibly useful for ballistics for fighting battles uh people wanted to make devices that they could sell uh people developed um medicines um, partly because they wanted to cure other people but also so they could make money and also so they could keep their workforce more healthy and so make more profit i mean wherever you look there's um profit is in, involved uh, when as when columbus discovered america and europeans started going over to the americas the main people who went there were traders and merchants who brought back all sorts of animals and plants uh, that could be used either medically or for profit or um, or similarly when, when um, English colonialists went to Africa what they were interested in was all the gold they weren't interested in discovering Africa or examining the habits of the local people what they wanted was for the local people to go down the mines dig up the gold and then they would take a whole load of them over in the ships um, to farm the plantations in um in America. And that was done under the name of scientific exploration of the African continent. Yeah. And, and so you're, if I'm understanding your thesis, thesis here is that no matter where we're at in history, this is always going to be a problem and the general public should be aware of this. Not really sure what to do with it at least, but you, you at least need to be aware of this problem. It's not really a problem. I mean, it's a basic fact of life that one of the major driving forces of human society is personal and national profit. Um, when I'm saying problem, let me let me clarify. If you believe that science is this um, altruistic thing, then from that perspective, it is a problem. It, it is a problem, and I, I don't agree with people who believe in right. science as pure pure research. I totally disagree with that. And that, I mean, that's going back. You asked me about my book, Science of Four Thousand Year History, and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to write it to to show all these broader factors and influences that are absolutely inseparable from science and its history. Okay, and so you we talked about Newton a, a few times now, um, and you said that you write books that interest you. Um, and so you have a book um, called Life After Gravity, I, Isaac Newton's London Career. Um, first off, did Newton invent gravity? <laughs> because Oh, well, that's a very, very good question. Whether, <laughs> did Newton invent gravity? Um, that, that's sort of going way into the um, realms of philosophy. He certainly invented the law that describes the concept mm -hmm of gravity, um, but that's rather different. The reason I originally got interested in Newton was I wrote another book about Newton a long, long while ago in about 2002, I think, or 2004. And the reason I try, I chose to write about Newton was that at that period, um, gender studies was rather a dirty word. And the idea was that if you were a woman, all you would write about is women's stuff. And I definitely didn't want to be put into that camp. So I deliberately chose the, the most famous male hero that I possibly could. And I've got a degree in physics. Um, so I felt that I could write um, with validity about someone like Isaac Newton. So that was why I first got interested in him, just to take the most difficult case and show that a woman could write something about, about him. 
Um, my, my first book was taught about Isaac Newton, was talking about how his reputation has been established over the couple of hundred years since, since he died and how it's changed and why it is we think of him as a great genius and what it means to be a genius and how the um, implications of that word has shifted. But this latest book is just to talk about the last 30 odd years of his life, which most people ignore. They're so Most people are so hooked on Newton and sitting under the apple tree, Newton being in Trinity College, Trinity, uh, Newton writing his great book on gravity. And what they completely ignore is that for almost 30 years, he was in a position very similar to the governor of the Bank of England. He, had, he was running the Lon London's Mint, which meant not only that he was producing gold coins, but also that he was involved in a lot of economic policy decisions that affected the welfare of the whole country. And, and did he rise to this status because of some of his scientific research? Was he was it a bloodline thing? Was he just a good good connector of people? How did he get in this position? Well, when he was at Trinity College, um, one of his very close friends was a younger man who became Chancellor of the Exchequer, and he was extremely influential. And one of the ways that you get promotion, you get jobs in the 18th century is through patronage. And Newton was desperate to get out of Cambridge, and this friend, uh, was called the Earl of Halifax, um, found a very, very nice job for him at the Mint, which earned him about three times as much as he was earning as a Lucasian professor of mathematics at Cambridge. There's also a great historical debate in which there are quite a lot of missing facts. So there's a lot of speculation, but there is a lot of evidence that Newton's step-niece, a woman called Catherine Barton, whom he was very close to, uh, that she quite clearly was having had an extended affair with the Earl of Halifax, who left her an absolute fortune in his will. So it was very, it's very clear that they did, did have a very close relationship. What's unclear is whether this started before or after uh, Newton acquired his position at the Mint. So there's a great deal of historical debate and speculation about that. So, yeah, so if I'm understanding correctly, that it's possible that the step-niece was using this relationship to help boost his career? Right. Uh, well, yes. Uh, well, yep. to help, it was possible that Newton. The allegation is that Newton knew about this relationship and accepted the position at the Mint in exchange for keeping quiet. About okay. It. Okay. Okay. Um, we we don't know. I mean, there's there's huge gaps in in correspondence and in diaries. I mean, it's it's only surmise. Is Newton overrated in your opinion? Yes, because I don't think he was a lone discoverer. A lot of a lot of the work that he did, as he said himself, he stood on the shoulders of giants. Um, I, I'm much more, rather than seeing a revolutionary step change version of history, I'm much more in favour of continuity. And he relied for his work on what his predecessors had done. He didn't single-handedly, in my opinion, suddenly mathematise the universe. He was certainly a very, very brilliant man, but I think he brought together um, a lot of ideas that had been circulating. And in my opinion, if he hadn't done it, one or more other people would have done instead. In fact, he was off, quite often accused of plagiarism at the time. So I don't, I don't think he, he was a unique person, but I don't think he was uniquely brilliant. I, I don't think he single-handedly revolutionised the, the whole of scientific history. That's a reputation that's been built up for him, partly 
um, to promote the idea of English genius as opposed to um, uh, what was happening in France where Newton's predecessor Descartes was the national hero. So part of it was national tension between England and France. And, and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the Bill Gates or the Steve Jobs or the Elon mm. Musk. They are all building upon what happened before them as well. Now, they might be able to captivate it um, and, and propose it in a new light or modify technology in just the right way that people go, oh, wow. But all of them are building on the shoulders of giants, just like uh, all scientists are. They're all taking what has been done before them, examining, examining it and trying to figure out how to do to further their research based upon what happens before. And so, um, again, it's kind of one of those things that we, we don't think about, but it's, it's just how it works, right? Well, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates um, did make a lot of money, a huge amount of money. During his lifetime, Newton did make quite a lot of money. But by the time he died, um, a lot of people were still very, very critical of his theories. I mean, I think it's very easy to imagine that uh, 1687, he published his, his great book, The Principia, and suddenly everybody was converted um, to Newtonianism. It was not like that at all. It wasn't really until the end of the 18th century that Newtonianism was accepted in France. And the version of Newtonianism we have now, we sort of when we think about our physical universe, we think of a deterministic universe, the idea that if you know where every single atom is right at this very moment, that in, in the future, in principle, you could work out where all of them are going to be. So that's a deterministic universe. It just sort of unrolls and there's nothing anybody can do about it. That would have been absolute anathema to Newton. For Newton, uh, his universe was sort of permeated by God and God could change what happened. God could intervene from time to time. And there was also this idea of... Um, attraction at a distance, that if you've got a big vacuum in space and you've got, say, the Earth and the Sun, that there's some power that somehow goes across empty space and attracts the Sun and the Earth towards each other. A lot of people found that idea absolutely abhorrent as well. So it really, it, it was not an instant success story. His reputation was very high, but his different people fiddled around at the edges of his theory and changed it and adapted it until um, they arrived at some version of the theory that is generally held today. You, you mentioned Newton's um, belief that God was involved, uh, maybe more so than, than is thought about historically, at least for the, the general public. Um, what role and how has it changed the role of God in science over the years? I think one of the big differences now is that whereas in Newton's time, Newton himself and a lot of other people thought that the whole point of studying the world, of doing natural philosophy. The whole point was to find out more about God. God, God was the, the grand designer and you could, by finding out how the world worked, you could find out how God had planned the world. So doing studying the world was in some sense a religious enterprise. Whereas I think nowadays, lots, many scientists are religious, but they don't write about their religion, whatever it might be. They don't write about their religion and their scientific results in the same place. They're sort of regarded as mostly as separate spheres. Whereas uh, uh, Newton's book on the Principia, for example, in the second edition, he added, added a whole section about God. So you've got what's held up as the greatest scientific book of history, the Principia, and there's a section on God right in the middle of it. Okay, let's talk about back to this this idea of women 
in science. Um, Because it it fascinated me as you've been talking, kind of thinking about your earlier comments of the women and their role in history. And it, it, it goes to a larger point of how hard it is to tell history. And so we might think, okay, we don't need another biography on George Washington because we've got 5,000, but the, the right historian might pick a piece of the pie that hasn't been told and expose it in a way. And it feels like that's what you're trying to do here with, with your women in history saying, okay, we've talked a lot about all these great scientists, these great times in history, but, but here's a particular angle in which I want to focus on. And so um, on some level, thinking about the role of the daughters and the wives and stuff like that is is something I haven't considered until I've heard you talk. Um, how do you balance bringing these women and giving them the proper attention without overemphasizing or de-emphasizing their role? So how do you try to thread that needle to where you get it um, um, accurate, an accurate portrayal of what they did? Um, well, I... I try very hard to be realistic about the contributions that women made. And um, until the 19th century, women didn't go to university. And so with a a couple of exceptions, they really couldn't make the intellectual contributions that men were making, however innately intelligent um, they were. I think once you get to the 20th century, the situation is different. And I wrote a book a few years ago about uh, a small group of extraordinary women who were scientists, doctors and engineers during the First World War. And the reason, I'm not a 20th century historian, but the reason I became fascinated with them was I was in an archive at one of the Cambridge colleges and the archivist showed me this large hand-lettered book which had the names of all the women, about six or seven hundred women, who were associated with Newnham College during the First World War. And they were all the women who sat on committees and worked for the Red Cross and made sandwiches and did all that sort of stuff. But the first section of the book described women who were studying ballistics, who were doctors overseas in Uh, war-torn areas like Serbia and Macedonia. Uh, There were uh, people uh, working on secret codes. There were people working on vitamin decays. Every single uh, chemical warfare, every single sort of scientific aspect you could think of. And So what I did was I immediately went running off to the university library because that's what all academics do. And I found there were lots of books, mainly by men, about the great male scientists of the First World War. And there were lots of books, mainly by women, about all the women who were suffragists uh, during the First World War or who worked in factories. But that sort of group, that intersection in the middle, the small number of women who were high-powered professional scientists in industry and universities and in medicine had been completely ignored. So I just sort of focused on them and brought them to life. It was quite difficult, but I found information about some individual women and um, I wrote about those. And I mean, I think my inference is fair that if, there were a few women doing that and there are lots others of others whose records have just disappeared. I mean, that's the problem that there are many women who we will probably never find out about or else just find a name and never know what they actually did. There's a lot of women like that. So, one of the things you said there was is that the women couldn't go to university um, in, in, in prior days. And so no matter how well studied or knowledgeable they were, they kind of were limited. But what about the 
the the court the correspondence the ch- the chatter the talk between the wife and the husband the husband's stuck you know and he can't he's just like I don't know what to do now and the wife throws out an idea um, that kind of helps reshape the way refocus the way he thought about an issue do you have any, have you come across stories like that uh, well there's one example is a ge- very famous geologist of the first half of the 19th century who's called Roderick Murchison and he ended up being president of the Royal Geographical Society and when he got married um, he said himself that what he really liked doing is drinking and fox hunting he was very keen on fox hunting and his wife Charlotte kept persuading him to do something more interesting and she herself went off and studied minerals and she studied shells and she became very interested in fossils and it was her who converted him to become uh, one of the century's great paleontologists so I think that's a nice example. No that, that, that is a, that's a great story and so um, one more question just kind of a, a random historical question here just thinking through this we're recording this in 2021. So it's easy. You talk about going down to the library and accessing stuff when you want to look something up. Um, maybe paint a picture of what it was like in you know the 1600s, the 1700s, when they wanted to do research, they wanted to explore. What what was it like back then? Because you couldn't just Google stuff or even go to, I mean, there, there was probably some kind of library, but it wasn't the same. So how did that work back then? How much different was it? Right. Well, in in just taking England, uh, for example, there were only two universities, Oxford and Cambridge, and the syllabus in both Oxford and Cambridge had been established for centuries. It was based on the medieval syllabus and people did a lot of logic. They learned about Aristotle. And it was only in the 17th century that that started to change. Um, printing was extremely important, so new ideas were conveyed through books. There was also a very extensive correspondent network that stretched across Europe, and there was this imaginary country called the Republic of Letters that allegedly, supposedly, transcended national boundaries. And letters were going backwards and forwards all over Europe, and people were exchanging ideas and discussing them and sending each other results. So that that was one of the ways that it happened. And then gradually, uh, societies started forming and people would go to lectures, they would watch demonstrations, and uh, the new coffee houses were opening. And that was an opportunity for men, mainly, to come together and discuss the latest ideas. What lessons should modern scientists take historical scientists incorporate? Um, I think to, in general, to have a very open mind, to be curious, to be prepared for failure. One of the, one of the downsides of the way scientific research is funded in the UK at the moment is that you have to apply for grants, which means that in a sense, you have to know what the results of your experiment are going to be before you've even done it. And if you think of someone like Uh, Crick and Watson, leaving Rosalind Franklin out of the story for a moment, but Crick and Watson were were meant to be doing something completely different and they became obsessed by uh, the DNA and eventually they they published uh, the the, their result, the, the double helix. That could never ever happen now because everything is so directed and focused and, and goal driven and if your experiment fails that is a result. I mean if you don't get the result you expected to that provides you with information 
and I think people are too success driven, uh, too, too results oriented, too application oriented. Yeah, I was talking to someone last year and they said the problem with the peer reviewed study system is that um, you it's hard to get a peer reviewed study of something that fails. Right. It, it's, it's easier to get a peer review if the experiment is successful. Have you come across that or any, any commentary on that? Uh, oh, ab absolutely. So actually, there's a very, very good example of the early 20th century um, when um, it was just when x-rays um, were being discovered. And a man in France said that he discovered something called N-rays. It was N for Nancy. That was the university he was at. And he had a complicated apparatus with a prism at the middle and he produced all these mysterious n-rays and he published papers about it and nobody understood what was happening so someone came uh, and looked at the apparatus and then one day a visiting scientist came and he while the professor the the guy who discovered the n-rays while his back was turned this visitor went into the apparatus and he took out the central prism and put it in his pocket. And then the experiment continued and everybody said they could still show, see the N-ray results. And this scientist produced the prism and said, no, look, it's all, it's all in your head. It's not actually happening. Now, something like that is really important to discover, to, to show that all these previous papers that have been accepted for scientific journals were just wrong. And you need to be able to do that. Yeah. Okay. So you bring that up and you've, you touched on climate change a little bit, which is a very controversial topic. Um, you know, it, at least in the U.S. I don't know about that on your side of the pond. What, what of, course, it of course, it's hugely controversial. <laughs> We're not sort of quite, you know, that far behind the times, you know. We oh, no, no, no. I mean, I don't, I, well, <laughs> what I've learned is I've got some friends across the pond and they always were like, you Americans, you know, they're always giving me, a, a, us a hard time for how we handle things. So I, I hate to project on what's going on over there because I don't, I don't follow the, the debates as closely. Um, but it, it's a, it's a weird dynamic. We talk about climate change because um, you will hear the argument, the science is settled. Right. And, and so wherever you come in on the climate change debate, um, where you kind of have these really crazy extremes on both sides. Um, some say the world will end in two years or some say that nothing's changing at all. And, and they'll kind of say the science is settled. And, and that's a, a troubling place to be because if you take about the analogy that you gave first off that's a very complicated science a but but b some of the other points that you've made about um motivations why people are doing stuff um how should we because climate change is an important topic so how do you think about something like that with all of the things that we've discussed um well i think climate change is an excellent example of how science and big business are firmly intertwined. I mean, if people hadn't developed aeroplanes, if they hadn't developed all, all the industrial products, if they hadn't burnt more and more coal, um, this would never have happened. And I think that's a big, a huge question that everybody who supports the scientific endeavour has to ask themselves. Is scientific research really the big undisputed success that it's made out to be. I mean, it's the same question, basically, that people were asking after the um, atomic bombs were dropped over Hiroshima, only now it's a more more global problem rather than a local one. So you're, if I'm understanding your argument there, you're saying that, that science, um, because it develops weapons um, or pollutants or, or whatever, there is a negative connotation that has to be weighed. But But on the flip side, we have life expectancy, we could travel, I mean, you could talk across the ocean, 
Um, there's a lot of positive as well. I live in Texas. It gets really hot, air conditioning, homes. So there's a lot of positive things as well. Mm, yeah, and you have to balance that. I mean, but by having this conversation, we're contributing to global warming because of um, directly by the electricity that we're using and indirectly in that we're encouraging more and more people um, to do research. And I, I really think, um, I mean, for ex another example is at the moment, there's there's all these missions to go out to planets that are further and further away to go, go to the moon. Perhaps we should be spending all that money on alleviating poverty and alleviating illness and I know it's an old argument it's a cliched argument but it's still true I mean which is more important yeah I'm not big I don't understand the desire people are like hey would you go to Mars I'm like no I don't want to go down Mars like I have no desire to no. Go to Mars. we're not going we're not going to colonize the moon whatever people may fantasize and there's some appalling things that we could be spending that money on and make ourselves a more, I don't know, it depends how you want to define civilised, but civilised has, has con some connotations of morality in it. And it's absolutely appalling that the direction both our countries are going at the moment is to increase dramatically the divide between the well-off and the people who are far less advantaged. And that gap in England, anyway, that gap is bigger than it was in Victorian times. I mean, we're going backwards, not forwards. Okay, so let's kind of take the plane into for final approach since we used we've talked about planes a few times. Um, a couple things here. Um, maybe general audience here. We're not we're not a bunch of scientists, so we're we are your target demographic. Um, maybe leave us with a few things to think about as we move forward. Whether we're when we hear science being evoked in the future, what are some things we should stop and go? Okay, before I take this too seriously. I need to have kind of a checklist of how to interpret this data. And, and one thing that I'm always torn over is, you know, so I'll give you an example. Um, I was having a discussion with someone the other day and they said, well, you know, you don't trust the science on this issue. And I was like, well, actually, I can't understand the science. Like I realize I can read the paper and I can read the words, but I have no idea if what they're doing is actual proper procedure, if this is the right stuff, if the results are made up. Like I, I can't, I can read it. But I had to trust that they're being honest with their stuff because I have no idea. What I can do is kind of observe what happens and see if that seems to be working. That that's that's about the only real science at that level um, I can do. Is that a good way to approach science? Think about science. Should we be trying to read more papers? Understand how should the general population think about these issues? No, I don't think there's any point us uh, as individuals trying to learn more science. Science has become so specialised that, e that even scientists can only sp talk in detail to a small group of other people. What what needs to be understood isn't the scientific content, the, the formulae, the experiments. It's what the um, how much the ex uh, experiments or how much the applications are going to cost, what, what they're going to be used for, who's investing in them, who's going to gain from them, what the social value is of introducing those innovations. I, I don't, don't think we need to know. I mean, any more than if you're looking at a balance sheet, you really don't need to understand how the accounts work. What you need to know is the bottom line figure of how much this is costing and how what the, what the effects are. That, those are the data that you need to know. You don't need to know the scientific equations. Okay. Other, other than Newton, who we're linked to your book about him in the show notes, what other historian, or not historian, scientist from history would you like people to know about? Ah, oh, um, well, my, my current preoccupation 
is, well, I've got several, but what, one is Rosalind Franklin. I would like her to be remembered not as the sort of female victim of Crick and Watson. I would like her to be celebrated as a pioneer of virology because in this in this time of COVID, viruses are very, very much in our thought. And she, she was one of the leading pioneers in that area of science. So I would like her to be remembered in a more positive way. Uh, my other current preoccupation is a woman who lived um, from roughly 1860 to 1940, and she's, she was celebrated as the queen of slime molds, and slime molds are strange organisms that are neither plants nor animals, but they, they've got, they seem to act intelligently but in a very different way from how human intelligence works and their activities are being used as a basis for new forms of computer programming that can solve problems that conventional digital computers find it almost impossible to tackle okay so it sounds like maybe some more books in the future are on the way then yes okay very good so. what's that I hope so. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I would love to go on writing some more. Yes. <laughs> very good. Very good. Okay. Well, this has been fantastic. Um, I've enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you so much for your time. We'll link to your books and your Amazon author page. Uh, anywhere else that you want to point people to, uh, direct them to if they want to find out more about your work? No, that, that'll do. Uh, <laughs> Amazon and pay your credit card and buy the books. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you so much for this. I really enjoyed it and look forward to hopefully talking to you again uh, when your next books come out. Thank you very much indeed. It's been fun talking to you. Thank you. We've covered a good range of topics.